This podcast provides a platform to discuss important questions and complex issues, challenge the status quo, and confront the boundaries of the establishment. I'm retired police chief Daniel Hahn. I went from being arrested at 16 to serving over 34 years in law enforcement. My goal is to keep you informed with news not being reported, voices not being heard, and the untold history of how we got here so that we can create a way forward. I have with my guests today, very honored to have Jesse Vasquez, who is the executive director of Friends of San Quentin News, which also encompasses all incarcerated run media programs. And you're also uh, heavily involved in East Oakland at the Madison Park Academy. And we'll get into those in a minute. But maybe the place we start is, you know, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and uh, eventually how you uh, became an incarcerated person. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I grew up in uh, Southern California, pretty much the typical life, you know, of uh, middle class uh, lower class family, you know, every place we went to, we uh, rented, we didn't own anything. Uh, we moved from place to place depending on, you know, uh, what the needs were. And my general crowd of company was folks that came from, you know, similar backgrounds. I come from a mother who's an immigrant. My father is second generation, you know, Mexican. And, you know, for the most part, you know, it was just a hardworking family. My mother was a stay at home mom. So we always had emotional presence. Unfortunately, you know, I grew up in environments where there was a lot of gang influence, a lot of gang activity, a lot of gun violence and uh, drug overdoses and things like that. So those were the realities of my neighborhood. And eventually it just took, you know, me making some wrong decisions and falling into that same uh, way of life, you know, just running the streets. I was a good student, you know, I did great in school and stuff like that. But I also had like this desire to fit in, you know, and just have some friends. Um, eventually those decisions led me to a, a, a life of crime, you know, uh, just selling drugs and getting involved in some shootouts and some shootings. And eventually I uh, attempted to murder somebody, you know, and ended up with a couple of life sentences in the California Department of Corrections at the age of 17. And how old were you when you very first, you know, caught your first case or went into custody your very first time? Uh, the first time was when I was 13 years old. I went in at uh, 13 years old. Uh, I was, you know, driving a car, ended up crashing, you know, hit and run. And it was just one of those little joyride nights, you know, that uh, turned ugly. Mm -hmm. Ended up in juvenile hall. And then after that, it just, I, I got comfortable. You know, it wasn't like I was uh, scared straight. I went to juvenile hall and it was just like, okay, you're going to be here three, four months. And, you know, it's your first time to let you out. And then it just became a revolving door for me. Right. And so starting at three... 13, in and out for, and the last time you were released, how old were you? The last time I was released, uh, before I caught my life sentence? <laughs> uh, no, after, when you got uh, commuted. Oh, when I got commuted, yeah. So in 2018, Governor Jerry Brown commuted my sentence, and I was released uh, May 22nd, 2019. So I was 36 years old. So basically from 13 to 36, you were in and out of... Uh, institution correct so when you first uh caught your i think you said three life sentences yeah what was your thought process and what was it like in the institution for you with that sentence that that seems like forever to me oh for sure it i mean it as a juvenile it um definitely felt like oh wow you know like 
there's a long time, you know, but it was like 25 to life for this, 25 to life for that, life for this. And it's like, is that all necessary? You know, like you go through that doubt, it's like, man, like, is, is it really that serious? And it was like, okay, you know, I know that I had, you know, shot somebody uh, multiple times. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm content with that. But, you know, the persona that you put on it, you know, it's like you have to take on like this role of like, oh, it ain't nothing. It ain't phasing me, right? But it wasn't so much like, okay, here's all the time that I have to do. It was like, here's everything that I've lost. You know, so I went through that phase for like the first five years of my incarceration. I would brag about, you know, like this, how much time I got. Because, you know, for some of us, you know, being a lifer was like a badge of honor. Right, right. Like, you know, like dummies get two or three years at a time. You know, we just catch life sentences, you know. Ain't no reason to have no three strikes. You know, I got mine on the first one. Right, you right. Know? So it was like a badge of honor that you can brag about. And even then, it was just because I was ignorant about like the human cost of incarceration. So the first five years, it was nothing but like grappling with like trying to be, you know, this prison tough guy and trying to fit in because going in at a young age, like you have to form your identity in there. Like I was never taught on the streets, right? Like how to be a man, what was expected of me, the responsibilities and all that. Because you were 13. Exactly, you know. <laughs> so all I learned was like how to be a toxic, you know, individual. How to be, you know, how to have this boss bravado and how to, you know, represent, you know, where I'm coming from and who I am and don't let anybody talk down to you and stuff like that and rebel against all, you know, authority figures. And it was like there was this struggle within me because I knew right from wrong from my parents. Like nobody had to tell me right from wrong. But at the same time, it's like I have to do wrong to fit in. Because right. if you want to do right, then, you know, you stand out and you become the black sheep, you know, in the group. Uh, and then coming from my background, you know, like California prisons are race and gang segregated. And it's hard, you know, to like break away from what you've known. Right. So I just had to adapt to that culture, you know. And even though I felt like uh, I felt bad because on the streets when I was young, I had black friends, Asian friends, white friends going to prison. You know, I couldn't associate with anybody for too long without it being seen as suspicious, you know, because I stuck with my own with my own crew and stuff. And it was hard because I realized later on, you know, like towards the 10th year, it's like everybody else is growing in like mentally and emotionally and they're having more friends in the prison community. And I'm still stuck in my own mindset, you know, because I haven't grown out of it. You know, I've grown like in age and I've grown in terms of like my mental capacity, but I hadn't grown out of my own mentality. Right. So it, it was just like hard, you know, finding my own identity as an individual, as a man, and especially as an incarcerated Hispanic. That brings me to another question. I've heard you speak before where um, racial issues or racial division or beliefs about certain race, uh, especially in prison, that's very racially segregated. Uh, talk to us about what that meant for you then and how as you got older, that evolved to where those, where you dealt with those issues. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting um, to be outside of prison now and reflect on all of these things, and be able to look back and say, man, like what the heck were we thinking? You know, like racism and race is an issue that's been prevalent in this country since its inception. Absolutely. You know, so like now when I went into the prison system, it's like okay, I came into the prison system. <laughs> Not a racist, not as a racist individual, 
I came into the prison system as somebody who was open-minded, but I have to adjust to like what the cultural norms are. So I come into a racist system, right? Right. That was segregated that way by law. It wasn't something that we created. So this is the thing, right? Like we may be gang segregated by choice, but we weren't race segregated by choice. We were race segregated from before I got to prison, right. before anybody else got there, because that's how the prison systems were built. Whites were always segregated from everybody else. And if you were anything but white, you were segregated somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So we were always kept that way. And eventually in the California prison system, it just became a structure of the cultural norms. So I adjusted to that system, even though I felt like, you know, this isn't like the right way to do things because I've never been racist. But you buy into that agenda, you know, and the more that you see the riots and the stabbings and, you know, the differences in culture, you know, it's like, yeah, you're trained to love your own culture, but you shouldn't be trained to hate somebody else's. Right. And that was one of the things that I could never like adjust to. That it's like, you know, at the one hand, you know, you don't want to associate with blacks, but that's all the music we listen to. And how did and you get from that place to where you are now? Because, you know, as somebody that's passionate about history, you know, this is an issue that's been around, as you said, from the inception of this country. So how did you, uh, as an individual, as yourself, transition from what was surrounding you at all times to accepting yeah, I think one of the biggest things was I realized, number one, that I had been ignorant to buy into a lot of the rhetoric. And I think my mental faculties increased, right? Like the day that I started thinking critically for myself and analyzing, like, why do I believe this bullshit? That's when I actually started seeing the world in a whole different way. <laughs> it wasn't like something external for me, right? Like I had like friends in prison that were white supremacists, right? And it was okay. You can hate blacks. You can hate Mexicans. I don't care. You can think you're better than us. It doesn't matter. You ain't gonna better. You ain't better than me, right? I can it's run faster than you. Than I can let's see, you. right? Yeah. It's like, man, that's more responsibility for you, bro. <laughs> you know, like you have to prove yourself to be better than me. I don't, right? Right. You can hold that view, and I can still respect you. I can still love you. I can still associate with you, so long as it does not infringe upon my safety and security. Deep, deep. As long as you don't mess with me, I don't care what the heck you want to believe. That's your business. That's your right. You know, as an individual, you can hold that. Me, I don't want to hold no hatred towards nobody. I don't want to limit myself, right? And it wasn't until I got to, like, because, you know, like I said before, like cultural norms and, you know, like social structures, they influence our behavior a lot. You know, a lot of people that I know in prison are there because of peer pressure, what they call it, right? right? But it's like, yeah, it's like environmental and cultural things, right? So when I got moved from uh, Old Folsom State Prison, right, which was still like heavily gang and race segregated, I went to San Quentin State Prison. San Quentin is completely integrated. Completely and why did integrated. You, I think you wanted to move from Folsom oh, yeah, to San Quentin. Oh, yeah, for sure. Why, why was that? For sure. It was the college program. Like, I wanted to get a higher education. I wanted to participate in the programs. I had read the San Quentin News, and I had seen, like, these are the programs that we have at San Quentin. We have a full-fledged college program, you know, called Prison University Project. We have a newspaper. We have all these rehabilitative programs, and they would show pictures of people smiling and people hanging out and people playing baseball with Seems free people. for prison. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I thought it was state propaganda. When I first seen it, I'm like, man, this is bullshit. This is state right, propaganda. Right. And all of a sudden, I was like, you know what? I got to go check it out. I want to go see this, right? 
not because I, I was like ready for the full transformation of like, you know, being fully awakened, but I was open to the possibility because I saw something better than just segregation and fighting over, you know, a little concrete yard and a little phone and a shower and stuff, right, that I'm not going to get to keep. Right. So I decided, okay, let me go in and experience this adventure. I got there, and it was, like, life-changing because the whole culture, the whole dynamics were different, not only from the incarcerated perspective, but even from the corrections officers. Like, we had free people that would come in from the streets, volunteers and stuff, shaking hands with you and telling you, hey, how you doing? How's everything going? Would you like to participate in this program and stuff? And it's like, everybody at the other prison, you don't get recruited for nothing. Right. Only time you see a free person is on a tour and you feel like you're in a zoo. All of a sudden, you know, you get to engage with these individuals and learn from them. And that started opening my mind to, like, a whole different world, a world that can actually be a community in spite of all the differences and all the class structures that we came from, here you have, like, San Quentin is in the richest county in America, Marin County. Mm-hmm. Only 30% of the, of the land is actually populated. It's the richest county, and you got these people coming in in flocks and droves to volunteer and help from a different class and a different strata and a different race wanting to come to help you in spite of what you've done. And I think you've even said that the correctional officers that were within the newsroom or whatever it was called um, basically treated you different than the other parts of where you had been. Is that? Yeah, it's uh, I think it's a cultural thing, right? Like I've, I've, I've spoken to many officers. I still have some correction officers that are still friends to this day since I've been out. Since you've been out. Since I've been out. I think out. people would be surprised about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I've been fortunate enough, right, to go to baseball games with the warden, the associate warden, and a couple of uh, facility lieutenants. Uh, I, I think and, some people in society say you're supposed to hate that warden. It's not his fault I was in prison, though. Why would I hate somebody for being in prison? <laughs> like, it's not their fault, you know? Like, they're entrusted with making sure that the institution runs. It's not their fault that I made bad choices and put myself in that predicament. Now, it's their responsibility to make sure that I have access and equal rights to all the opportunities that are available at their facility under their watch. That is a responsibility, you know, but we have mechanisms to hold them accountable for right. that. But right. it's not their responsibility, you know, for my feelings and my bad choices as a juvenile. You know, so I don't hold no, like, hate or anger or frustration or bitterness towards the officers who arrested me, the prosecutors who sent me, the judge who sentenced me, or the guards that were in charge of, like, making sure that I obeyed by the rules and stuff while I was incarcerated. That's not my story. Right. That's not my opinion. You know, um, I was fortunate enough to make it to San Quentin, which is unique in probably the whole country. It's definitely unique in California. It's one of the most rehabilita- rehabilitative prisons in America. And I, let, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, I'm curious why you, what you think is the difference between that environment where you were talking about the people from outside the institution that come in to help, the correctional officers that work in that environment versus some of the other environments in the institutions. Not too long ago, I went on a tour of the prison industries at Old Folsom, and they have a whole section one of the largest, most successful Braille um, where they write books for people who are blind mm-hmm. in the country. Right. And the correctional officer that that's one of it, where he works started crying when he was talking to us mm-hmm. about the, the inmates that were in there working. Mm-hmm. And you could 
I've, I've never seen a correctional officer cry about talking about the work that the folks that are incarcerated do in there. And you've kind of described similar in San Quentin. What, what do you think it is about that environment that seems a little different than some of the other environments in the institutions? Yeah, I think having been in, you know, about a dozen institutions, I kind of can, I, I got a good understanding of what, you know, some of those factors may be. Right. You know, I'm not just speaking out of theory as most people do in these types of situations. Uh, all the other institutions are very restrictive. Program is limited, you know, uh, county, community involvement is, you know, limited, it's scarce. So there's a couple of factors there, right? Number one, imagine the element of human proximity. You know, at San Quentin, you have volunteers coming in all day, every day. So it's kind of segregated from the rest of the world, basically. Exactly. Okay. You know, so you have like a unique environment where all these community volunteers come in, right? So that works two things, right? Number one, it works for pro-social development for the incarcerated, where they can learn to develop as human beings and talk to other people as individuals versus, you know, that's a cop and I'm an inmate or I'm an incarcerated person and that's a guard, right? Now you start seeing people as like, oh, just people. Versus other institutions, all you see constantly is the guards in green and the guys in blue. So that's all you see, and that's the mindset of us against them. The other factor that plays a good role in like all these community engagement and volunteers is the accountability aspect. See, guards are less likely to be assholes when there's community presence because there's eyeballs watching. So for us in blue, you know, if you write a complaint or a 602... And us in blue, you're yeah, talking about the people yeah, that are incarcerated, Yeah, the, the people right? that are incarcerated, okay. right? So all of a sudden, right, so it's our word against theirs. How many times do you think they're going to believe the incarcerated <laughs> over a guard? <laughs> Probably not often. Exactly. So all of a sudden, you've got all these community volunteers coming in. You can't really assault too many people if you've got a lot of community eyeballs on you. You can't really do too much, you know? Right. So it kind of curbs that desire, right, to lash out and be unprofessional. Because granted, a lot of times, right, that I saw in other institutions where things got out of hand and there was riots with the officers and, you know, somebody ended up getting beat up, it was because of unprofessionalism. Hmm. It was just that. Right. Simple as that. It wasn't like, you know what? I don't like you today and I want to beat you up. It wasn't like us against them and, you know, we have to beat them up Losing every single day of their life. Yeah. It's like, no, it was always behind a corrections officer disrespecting the wrong person on the wrong day, you know, deviating from his professionalism, right, and thinking that, you know what, he's protected because of his uniform and it don't work like that for some folks. Right. So you mentioned a minute ago um, that when you went to Quentin, you took college courses and, and got involved with this um, program at San Quentin, but I want to go back to the college courses. Over the years, even from when I was in high school and uh, fresh out of high school at the junior college, I would hear a lot of people upset that they had college programs in prison. And uh, even to this day, you can hear people saying, look, I have to pay for college and I haven't done anything wrong. How do you give these cats in prison a college education that me on the outside who hasn't done anything wrong or got caught for anything wrong has to pay for things? So you are a beneficiary of those programs. What would your response be to the people that think that, uh, you know, you just need to be in there busting rocks or something and, and doing, doing hard time, and we shouldn't be having that sort of investment into you? 
Yeah, I think uh, number one, it's uh, it's important to value people's opinion and recognize where they're coming from. You know, like my first thing is I would understand. I would want to understand why do you make those statements? You know, apart from the economic thing, right? right. Like I have to pay for these courses. Like I, I don't think people understand that even though the incarcerated aren't paying for those courses, somebody's paying for it. Mm-hmm. Somebody's paying for it, and it's usually a foundation, a government, you know, some high uh, net wealth donor who wants to make sure that, hey, these folks have a, a second chance at life, have an opportunity, right? So somebody does pay for it, and it's usually not coming out of, like, the community pocket, right? But, you know, for those individuals who do say that, it's like, okay, well, you could take advantage of the same thing if you go to prison. You could get it for free. That's number one, right? You have the option. <laughs> you have the option, right? You, you could come and follow us, right, and take that path, come out with a college degree. Or or you could seek some scholarships and sponsorships, right? It all depends, right, what path you want to take because there are, like, financial assistance for everybody. It's not like you couldn't get the help and you couldn't get the free college if you actually wanted it for free. Somebody could sponsor you. You could get a scholarship. You know, you could find some way, some mechanism. It's easy to complain about people that are disenfranchised, historically marginalized, right, and who don't have a voice or a platform to defend themselves. You know, it's easy to always point the finger, and the reason why I didn't go to college is because all the money went to them. And it's like, no, it's because you're lazy probably. You know, there are other reasons why you did not go to college. It isn't just that. There are plenty of colleges, I will tell you, most of the community college courses that are offered through correspondence inside of prison, the quality of education is not at par with what you would get. I was disappointed when I found out that the two AAs that I had from a certain college that I will not name, uh, they weren't even accredited fully because some of the courses weren't even recognized. And you know why that is? So this is an interesting thing for those who think that it's all about funding. Sometimes it is. So a lot of community colleges that don't reach the benchmark in enrollment for funding have to rely on correspondence colleges to the incarcerated to make up the difference to get federal funding. So it's not our fault that they want to give us free courses. It's to their advantage, not ours. You know, They're not doing us a favor. They're doing themselves a favor. We get the benefit from it too, though. So we'll take on whatever hand that we can get to improve our lives and our quality of life, we'll take it. But it's not always just on us. You know, they always want to blame the incarcerated because we low-hanging fruit. We're low-hanging fruit for politicians. We're low-hanging fruit for police funding. We're low-hanging fruit for these folks that want to make an excuse for why they can't succeed in life. We're low-hanging fruit for everybody. But guess what? We're not. You know, we have just as much a right to the opportunities that exist in this country to help bring people up so that we can have some sense of equity. Well, on one of our other shows, somebody that had been done time in prison said, Basically, we're human beings too, right? We yeah. we did things wrong, we did things, but we're still human beings. So with that, I, I think, uh, as you've said, it sounds like San Quentin and the programs at San Quentin, the media programs, the writing programs at San Quentin uh, were and are a big part of your life and a big part of your evolution to where you are now. Um, talk to us a little bit about the... the, the um, history of that program that you're a part of in San Quentin? Because I know it started out just at San Quentin. Now I think it's expanded to numerous other prisons with a much larger distribution. So just talk to us about that and what it meant to you to get to where you're at now. Yeah, for sure. So San Quentin News, um, it's a publication that started surprisingly by a warden, prison warden, 
You know, back in 1940, Clinton T. Duffy decided that, you know what, the incarcerated should have a publication so that, number one, they can quote the rumors that are happening in institutions. Number two, they can report about things that impact them and that are important to them. And number three, they need to have a voice. They need to have some say. So that was surprising that a prison warden would start the publication for the incarcerated, yeah. you know? So that's like, you know, historical for me, right? And the prison newspaper was shut down back in like 1984, you know, over some lawsuit. It was resurrected by a prison warden again. Robert Ayers Jr. in 2008 said, you know what, I want to bring this newspaper back. I think it can make a difference in the culture of the institution. I think it can make a difference in the mindset of the individuals. And we want them to have a voice, you know, so that they can actually have something to say and also report on things that are important to them in the community. And then, you know, we only printed 4,000 copies inside of San Quentin at that it time. It just went inside. Exactly. So then another warden in 2012, uh, Mr. Ron Davis, who's in Sacramento now somewhere in headquarters, he said, you know what, if you guys wanted this paper, what would you do with it? Like, what's your ideal vision when for this newspaper? When he says you guys, he's talking about the your guys new, in blue. Yeah, the new staff, yeah. you know, the incarcerated okay. staff. What would you guys want to do with this paper, right? And the guys were like, you know, we want to be in every institution in California. And at that time, there was 36 institutions. And the warden said, you know what, I'm going to make that happen. So he went to a warden's meeting, and he convinced all the wardens to go ahead and accept the newspaper. So all of a well, sudden, I we would go, say that's <laughs> part of humanizing people, right? You ask their opinion. Yeah, exactly. So he was like, we've had these progressive wardens, you know, who have taken on not just the challenge of overseeing, you know, the carceral system, but also have not risen up to the opportunity of like, how can we improve what we're doing for these individuals incarcerated? So we went from printing 4,000 copies inside of San Quentin to printing over 35,000 copies and distributing them to all the prisons in California. And then within the next couple of years, we had um, the Reva and David Logan Foundation and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation come in and make a significant contribution to help expand the reach of the publication because it ain't free to print. You know, it costs about 10 grand a month, you know, to print and distribute this newspaper. So... Richard Logan from the Reva and David Logan Foundation and Jonathan Logan visited the newsroom and they said, you know what, we think everybody should be able to hear these voices and we want to make sure that it's perpetuated and it continues. So that's how we went from printing just 4,000 to printing, you know, right now we're at 40,000 copies. We're in all 35 institutions, juvenile halls, county jails. We distribute to individuals outside of California in 40 different, uh, 48 different states now. And then as far as our training program goes, when I transferred to San Quentin, I got recruited to be a part of the Journalism Guild, which is our writing program on how to become a journalist, how to learn objectivity, and be a concise writer. So we're in three different institutions now with that program. We have a, training with, inmates how to exactly. Do that. We're okay. training other uh, incarcerated individuals. Incarcerated. See, <laughs> exactly. Now you got to remember, you know, you ain't police chief no more. You got to start talking about incarcerated people. Got it. Got yeah. it. Got it. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we're training men and women, you know, on the craft of journalism, storytelling, and our ultimate goal, right, is to have at least one media center in every state across the country, at least in the states that have high incarceration rates of predominantly black and brown communities. Uh, number one, because we believe that it's important for the incarcerated to get their voice out into mainstream media, to have a say, and number two, because we believe that it's a primary tool of democracy. You know, you can't exclude people in the community 
and think that you have a community. When you marginalize 2.7 million across the nation, you know, and 150,000 in California alone, you know, just because they're in prison doesn't mean they don't have a voice and they right. shouldn't have a vote. Right. How did this, what did this program, I mean, you're still heavily involved in this program uh, now that you're not incarcerated, but how did this, uh, what impact did this program have on you? <clears throat> you know, I think one of the things of being in prison is I never thought I was going to get out. And all I saw was what was in my institution, what was in my vicinity, right? I didn't care about watching the news. I didn't care about what happened on the streets, you know, what gas prices were looking like. I didn't worry about none of that because when you have multiple life sentences and no hope of getting out, the only life you have is what's inside. And you can't ever see anything, you know, beyond that because when I went into the system, no life was coming home. And what's harmful about that? <sighs> I mean, there's a lot of harm in giving human beings no hope. You have them in a sense of despair, you know, and then you wonder why they have to self-medicate, why they lash out, why they're always bitter, angry, grumpy. And it goes back to, like, the days of Governor, you know, Gray Davis, when he made a statement talking about no lifers coming out of prison unless it's in a pine box. Mm. What kind of hope do you think that gives anybody with a life sentence? Exactly. None. You know, so all of a sudden, you know, you got like Jerry Brown comes back into office, you know, after 35 years of, you know, being somewhere else. Right. He comes Including back. Oakland. Exactly. <laughs> he comes back, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know what? I think we need to reform this system. I think we need to change it. You know, and we went from being in despair and darkness. Right. To all of a sudden having a sense of hope. You know, where it was like now I have an incentive. Right. Like there's a glimmer and a chance that I might get out. For me, it was like, okay, I may never get out, but it's okay. I have opportunity to do good. There's a chance for me to grow and be better, right, and leave a better legacy. Mm -hmm. There's a way that I can mentor younger incarcerated individuals. There was programs that I started in the California prison system, right, that had it not been for me, they wouldn't have a literacy program for uh, ESL. Because when they cut the funding under Arnold Schwarzenegger for the education programs, they didn't want anybody learning English. And it's like you got like 26% of the population in California who right. are just Spanish speakers. You know, almost 40% are Hispanic. 26% of those, right, only speak Spanish. Why would you not teach them English? How are they supposed to appeal? How are they supposed to participate? How are they supposed to rehabilitate? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I don't want to believe that the system is sinister, <laughs> right, and that it's set up for failure, right, and that they want to keep us locked down, right? But when you see those type of like cuts, those budget cuts that affect, you know, your quality of life and your opportunity for per, uh, personal growth, right? You can't help but think that, yeah, there's a conspiracy about keeping black and brown people incarcerated or in, at least in ignorance. Or it might just be the comfortable thing to do because that's what you've always done. So you mentioned Governor Brown and you mentioned Governor Davis. Um, and you talked earlier about how your sentence was commuted, and that's why you're uh, sitting here with us today. So, again, to the people that would agree with Governor Davis and say, hey, you got to do your whole time. This, especially today, I hear a lot with violent crime increasing in many cities across the country, 
Um, I hear a lot of people going, the reason for that is we just letting everybody out. So those people would probably be more in line with Governor Davis that says, you know, you're, you're going to do your whole sentence as opposed to Governor Brown, who commuted your sentence. What, what would you say, um, one, in general, uh, you kind of mentioned it, what it means to have hope and have programs that can build you towards that hope that you can get out and live a, a healthy, productive life outside versus the people that say, you should just stay in prison. Yeah, I think um, it's a valid point. It's a valid point, you know, especially when you just look at the statutes, right? If you look at the law as a statute and you say, okay, you know, this costs 50 cents, you got to pay 50 cents. You know, if you say, okay, this crime is, you know, it's going to cost you 25 years of your life, right? If it's going to cost you 15, 10 years, whatever, right? But the laws aren't set that way. The laws are arbitrary. See, if we had a fair criminal justice system and we had fairness as, you know, the standard by which we're going to say, okay, you know, this is the standard that you're going to, like, gauge every life on, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to tell you why I'm biased, right? I know a white gentleman who killed two people was out in seven years. Hmm. Because somehow, some way, you know, it was seen as manslaughter versus murder. Mm -hmm. And I've seen black and brown people, you know, for attempted murders with two, three life sentences. There is no fairness in the criminal just is system. It's not mm -hmm. justice. It just is the way it is because of politics. And there's many stories like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So for me, you know, number one, like I recognize that there's a lot of survivors and victims groups out there. Right. And they have a valid point to be angry to be frustrated and to want a semblance of justice but first let's define what justice is we haven't even got to that point yet right because we're still dealing in anger and emotion yep we haven't even had the conversation of what's fair what does that actually look like and what do the victims actually want what do the majority of survivors want sometimes they just want closure Sometimes they just say, you know what, I don't care what happens to him, you know, as long as he changes and he becomes better and my brother or sister or father didn't die in vain, you know, I'm good with that. So we can't just keep taking, like, you know, one organization's voice and amplifying that and saying that everybody has that same opinion. That's one of the mistakes that we make. Number two, right, when it comes to, you know, governors and politicians that want to be progressive and compassionate, right, I think it's their personal growth because Jerry Brown wasn't always as woke <laughs> or as compassionate because if my, you know, recollection, you know, serves me right, I wasn't born when a lot of the, you know, habitual criminal acts were put into place in California. But I believe that Jerry Brown was, you know, the one behind those. Mm -hmm. And he came back to fix those 35 years later. But he came back with a different mindset after watching the system deteriorate and watching human beings, you know, pine for some relief and some redemption, right? Because there was no hope for it. So um, I'd be hard-pressed, and anybody would be hard-pressed to find anybody who's had their sentence commuted, who understands grace, right? Because a, commu a commutation is something we don't deserve. We just get it because the governor says, you know what? I think you've done enough time. I think you could be a good contributor to our community. I think you'd be an asset, right? The attorneys weigh in, the parole board weighs in, and they let you out. Those individuals, they have a 0% recidivism. 
you couldn't find one person who has been commuted, you'd see it all over the news if they did. Oh, yeah, for sure. All of the new crimes and all of these violent crimes, I hate to break it to some of these folks that think it's because we're being, like, leaning on crimes. All of these are new criminals. <laughs> they ain't the old ones doing these new crimes. <laughs> the old ones already learned their lesson, you know? So sometimes people just got to do some fact-checking. That's the one thing that I, I am very appreciative about journalism. I learned how to fact-check. I do not open my mouth unless I am sure about something. Because if some of these people who spew these numbers and all this hate and rhetoric, if they were in danger of being sued for defamation, oh. they would not say some of this nonsense that they spew Absolutely. because they would be held accountable. But they get away with it because, you know, of this fear mongering. That's an interesting story, too. I'm pretty sure you remember, you know, the uh, Willie Horton case. Oh, yeah. Like 1989. Yep. And this whole media frenzy yep. that created that, right? They call it the Willie Horton effect, right? When they amplify so much one crime, right? And say, like, oh, this is happening everywhere, yes. you know? And they, like, l make people believe this, and then they force them, right? Or they manipulate them into fear. Yep. And it people respond day. in fear all the time. And it's like, that's not happening every day. It not only happens with criminals, it happens also with cops. Oh, yeah. You have, you know, a couple cops, you know, who do something dumb, kill somebody, right? And it's like, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't. It's not for me to judge. Whatever happened in that incident happened there. It's not every day across America right. that with it's happening. With every cop. With every cop, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But yeah. that's what you hear. Well, speaking of that, what does it say, uh, because we live in a, a, a fairly divisive environment right now. Mm -hmm. And what does it say about, you mentioned earlier, you've been to, I think it was a baseball games, and you have a relationship with lieutenants, wardens, law enforcement officials. What does it say about you and about a warden that somebody with three life terms and a warden can go to a baseball game and have a relationship outside of the institution? What does that say about the two of you? You know, I think, you know, having reflected on it in the baseball stands, right, you know, <laughs> with the pitchers, right, and, you know, we even took a selfie because we thought, man, this is a historical moment for us, right? You know? I would say uh, so. And I remember he said, well, it's not how I thought, you know, life would be. <laughs> you know, and we started laughing at it, right, because I don't think any of us ever thought that. When he started his career 25 years ago, right, and I started my prison sentence, we were two totally different individuals. But here we are, you know, 24, 25 years later, right, having gone through, you know, this purging of stupidity, bias, prejudice, you know, and having seen, like, the potential of the, every human being and also, like, the potential for good and the potential for evil, because I'm pretty sure as a warden, he saw many crooked cops. He saw a lot of misbehavior, a sure. lot of misconduct, and a lot of investigations. And I, too, saw a lot of, like, making excuses and trying to blame somebody else, right? There's always this blame about the mysterious white man, right, who never shows up in court cases, right? But somehow he was behind <laughs> it, right? Uh, but I think that the main reason why we were both able to, like, and we're still able to have this relationship is because we see value in the individual. You know, Aristotle, as a philosopher, he says that there are three types of friends in the world that you're going to have. Number one is a friend of convenience, who only needs you for convenience. Number two is a friend of necessity, 
And number three is the friend of mutual admiration. You admire the individual because of his character, his intelligence, his integrity, and I think that's what we found in each other. That's the only kind of friends I got. I think you're a, I'm, I'm sure you do this every day, uh, shadow, shattering stereotypes and all sorts of beliefs that society puts in us. You know, somebody with three life sentences quoting Aristotle, I don't think most, <laughs> most people are going to think that they would hear that. Um, along those same lines of the divisive environment that we live in, you know, uh, I grew up in the neighborhood here in Sacramento. I was arrested at 16, but, you know, was only held for several hours. So I never actually did any time. And I witnessed all sorts of things in my neighborhood. And then I became police chief um, uh, in a 34-year career. And what I've seen, especially over the last couple of years, but to be honest, my whole life, but really intense the last couple of years, is this division between community, especially the impoverished community and the minority community and law enforcement. And I hear a lot outside of the impoverished community and outside of the minority community about abolition uh, to abolish law enforcement and start over with something completely new. Uh, as somebody that uh, grew up in the neighborhoods, did a significant amount of time in custody and now is doing amazing things. I'm curious what you think about uh, 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 law enforcement's presence in these communities and those that believe we should be doing away with law enforcement. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because in uh, deep East Oakland, so I still live in the hood, you know, uh, I probably couldn't afford to live anywhere but the hood, you know, especially in the Bay Area. Oh, Oakland yeah. is expensive, you know. You can't afford to live in the hood in the yeah, Bay Area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, I love living in the neighborhood. I love living in the neighborhood. I, I don't like too much the cars that are sitting on bricks and stuff without tires and rims and <laughs> right, right. all the shattered glass and windows and stuff, right? But um, it's home. It's home. It's what I remember. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what I remember growing up in, you know, Santa Ana in the neighborhoods. It's what I remember growing up in South Central Los Angeles. You know, it's what I remember on Rosecrans and in Compton and all the streets where I lived at. Uh, and there's some historical background behind all those neighborhoods, right? Like Absolutely. all of our families and all of our, you know, ancestors, right? They went through something. They came to something. They paved the way for us to have a better life, right? We made our choices, right? So when I go to my neighborhood in East Oakland and I volunteer there, I live there, I sleep there, I ride my bike around there, I feel safe there. I see police cars and stuff like that, and I'm like, what the hell are they up to, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not because I say that in a derogatory sense. It's like, who the hell is doing something dumb again, right, to, like, draw more attention and stuff, right? I've always known police, right, and... Granted, I also like lived in the Rampart District in Los Angeles, yeah. so and that yeah. was a totally different type of, you know, yes. uh, police environment. Uh, there's movies and books written about them Absolutely. dudes, right? Still, uh, yeah, mayhem, right? But uh, I wasn't like I understand the terror that came behind that, but I also recognized like, hey, this this was one generation during the time, and now they have to be held accountable. Now, when I see like OPD. I've read the history, I've read the books, I know the history of Oakland fairly well. Uh, I love Oakland because of that. But one thing that I disagree with a lot of people that supposedly speak on behalf of our community, right? It's not everybody believes that we shouldn't have law enforcement. 
not everybody believes that we should defund the police. They say that stuff sometimes, right? You know, I got neighbors who say, you know, even though like every time their catalytic converter gets stolen, first people they call is the cops. <laughs> and it's like, why'd you call them? You know, I thought you were talking about defund the police. Oh, I got to make a police report for the insurance. I'm just going through the formalities and stuff, right? right? Right. But when nobody's listening and nobody's watching, they tell me like, dude, the reason why I don't want to say anything, right, that I'm for law enforcement is because people are making it about race. That if you support law enforcement and you know institutions of oppression, that you're support you're supporting state violence, white supremacy, and you know like the fundamentals of this country and stuff, right? And I think there's a huge difference between like me wanting to be safe in my community and having some safeguards, because nobody wants to see me take justice into my hands. It already cost me a couple you know decades of incarceration, you know, like thinking that I was doing some justice in my neighborhood. You know, so I don't think we want to see that in our communities. I'm not against law enforcement. I think it could be done better. Right. I absolutely. think there's a way that we can, like, bridge the gap between, like, who polices our communities, you know, versus, like, who actually lives in them. Because sometimes you don't see officers that look like you, you know, in your neighborhood. And sometimes, like, some of the, um, I, I mean, I've seen some bad scenarios, right, where it's like it could have turned ugly, but, you know, because of cell phone cameras and body cams, right, like things were de-escalated really fast, right? And I wonder, like, if we didn't have that, would it have, would it have gone sideways, you know, for the individual? And I think that's what the community is, like, you know, wanting to do versus, like, it's not defund, but, like, how can we fix it, right. you know, because there's a necessity. There are certain, like, I always use the term necessary evils, in an ideal world, right, me and you can walk down the street and nobody will judge us, nobody will say nothing, nobody will criticize us, right? Nobody will try to rob us, you know, try to take our cars or anything. That's an ideal world where we don't have people who have greed, envy, jealousy, right, or a need. Right. You know. When you don't have human emotion. Exactly. <laughs> when you don't have that in place, it's like, okay, you know, we'd be cool. Right. But we don't have that. So absent an ideal society you have to have necessary evils. You have to have necessary structures and systems, right? And I would, you know, also, you know, just chime in, right? A plug for my folks in Central America, Mexico, and South America, right? Where it's street justice every day. Where there ain't no law enforcement. Right. Where where you do a crime, ain't no doing no time. Somebody gonna whoop you in the middle of the street and probably hang you or beat you to death. Like, that's how they do it. Every time you see Hispanic news, anytime you see the Spanish news, right, whether it's Al Rojo Vivo, Univision, or something, in Colombia, Peru, wherever you think of, right, that there's not a strong law enforcement presence, the community has to take matters into their own hands. And I think we take that for granted because in this first world country, sure. we complain about everything. We have the luxury, the luxury of sitting back and criticizing and complaining. So one more question, then we'll wrap up. And I have the last thing I'm going to ask you is how can people help if they if they um, want to get involved? But in ideally, you you currently uh, came from San Quentin and were part of that media program, the newspaper in San Quentin. Now you're outside, still working on those programs. Uh, ideally, for you, realistically, ideally. Um, what would that look like as people are 
in custody and are coming out of custody. Is there more that could be done in regards to these programs that you run that could connect outside with inside and help ensure more people are successful on the outside after coming out of that environment for so many years? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that, you know, we're seeing a lot of today, right, when people come home is there's a little bit more opportunity. The California Department of Corrections, at least in California, I can say, right, they have a lot more resources that they're willing to funnel into programs and projects, right, whether it's transitional housing, vocational training, or transitional thing. The one thing that we don't have that we do need more of is community integration. And what I mean by that is, like communities opening up their arms and saying, you know what, like you don't have to just go to that state funded program. You can come to this program that's in the community. You can come into this home that's in our community. And also like local businesses, you know, opening up the doors to hiring formerly incarcerated. For us, it's like we have individuals that know how to manage a budget, know how to run Excel spreadsheets, you know, do mailings, mass mailings. In yeah, while they're they incarcerated. Everything. They learn how yeah. to lay out a paper, a magazine, shoot video, do photography, right? They know how to edit and splice all this content together. They know how to do audio engineering, you know, video productions and stuff like that. And guess what? Ain't no pathways to employment in that industry. There's no pathways to employment, right? Not because we haven't tried cultivating them, right? But because, you know, in the mainstream media, there's, there's a lot of stigma. And that's one of the reasons why, like, we're going through rebranding right now with Friends of San Quentin News. Uh, and, you know, this new initiative, it's called Pollen Initiative. And the reason why we settled on the name Pollen is because Pollen as a seed, you know, it's inanimate. It needs help to be transported somewhere else. But it, surprisingly, it only grows inside of the part of the female plant called the stigma. That's the only place I where it germinates. Wow. That's where the seed actually germinates and gives life to something completely new. So we want to make sure that these opportunities that we're presenting to the incarcerated not only germinate for them a new life, right, and a second chance, but also give hope to a broader, you know, community that they're going to come home to one day. That's awesome. I, I'd never known that, never heard that before. So with that in mind, uh, somebody that's listening or hears about you or the program, uh, how could they get involved? How could they help with this? How would they contact you? All of that. How would somebody uh, help? Because one of the things that seems pretty evident to me is every the vast majority of people that are incarcerated are going to come back at some point. Yep. And do we want them to come back as productive, healthy members of our community? Or I, I remember as a young officer, it was very uh, prevalent in the mindset and the culture that, you know, you're going to arrest this person, they're going to go to prison, and then they're going to get out, and they're going to commit a crime again, and we'll be there. We'll be there to catch them, and we'll be there to send them back to prison. Now, I had some different experiences because of where I grew up, but still, that was the prevalent mm -hmm, mindset, mm -hmm. even for right, me. right until I got a little bit older and I thought to myself, every time you do that, there's a victim associated with that. So if, if I'm okay with them committing another crime because I'm just going to be there and arrest them, there's another family, another person in some way or shape is, is a victim of that, not including the person that committed the crime. Now they're, you know, going back. So the vast majority of people are going to come back to our communities and they're going to be driving and living and participating in our communities. And it, to me, it's as a society, how do we value and, and humanize, uh, 
keep looking at somebody as human, but for our own self-preservation and our own well-being, I want this person to be as healthy as possibly can be because they're going to be my neighbor. So how could people help you with that goal of expanding those opportunities that you talked about? What, where would they go? How would they contact you? Yeah, so we do have a couple websites. Uh, the one that they can reach me at is friendsofsanquinnews.org uh, uh, okay. or .com. Dot com uh, and then we have sanquinnews.com and also forwardthisproductions.com. They can reach out through any of those platforms. Eventually, I will get the emails. Uh, some of the things that we do need, you know, is always volunteers. Okay. We always need mentors. We always need advisors. We could always use donors. We can always use sponsors, and we could definitely use community support in creating pathways for people coming home for employment. You know, if they need somebody who's a good writer, whether it's a grant writer, story writer, you know, somebody who can do some multimedia productions with them, even if they just want to hire an intern, you know, uh, we have people that are coming home that are willing and able and, uh, you know, second chances. That's it. You know, the community can do the best work that they do by giving us a second chance and a helping hand. That's awesome. And I'm honored to meet you. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, I think a lot of times when I uh look around, I see people not fully using all their abilities and capabilities and heart and all that. And you definitely are somebody that does that and is an example um, for all sorts of people, but for our community of what's possible. Um, what's possible when we look at somebody as a human being, what's possible when we give second chances. If whoever's out there that's never made a mistake or done something wrong, please stand up because I don't think anybody would be standing yeah. up. So, <laughs> It's an honor to have met you and have you on the show. I appreciate you sharing with us and and all all the luck and and uh, success to you and all the programs and the people, more importantly, that you help. Thank you for being on. Thank you. One of the big purposes of A Way Forward is to hear different voices and different opinions because that is how we can make informed decisions ourselves. So if you are someone that would like to come on A Way Forward to express your opinion, go to chiefhan.com forward slash podcast. Chief, H-A-H-N dot com forward slash podcast.